restart. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carol Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writingmfa. To paraphrase William Holden and Network, we're part of the TV generation now. This is a podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network with... No name, but you might recognize our voices. I'm Chance Solempfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here in these times of COVID-19, stuck with our screens, stuck with our buffering, and we're going to review some television, Noah. Let me ask you before we start, do you think, is COVID-19 part of the Cloverfield universe? I think I'll just say yeah. Or is it more like Chappie? (laughs) <laughs> well i gotta break it to you brother most of life is like chappy and That's true already you can see that we what are we two minutes in we made three movie references and this is a podcast about television um we're doing our best guys we are it's sort of like er they're <laughs> just trying to get through the day and do their best yes a show that i like is cheers you know that I go nuts for Frasier. There's a lot of sitcoms that I can get behind in the big way. Wings, Home Improvement, Family Matters. You get behind Home Improvement in a big way? <laughs> I do. I think I've seen most of Home Improvement. So I don't know how much of this preamble is necessary, but we normally host a genre hopping show on this network called Be Real. You should check out that show in addition to Indie Beat, Fourth Wall, The Discourse. Subscribe and rate the the feed wherever you get your shows. The Playlist Podcast Network should be there, and we would love a kind rating or comment or constructive feedback. But we're here to talk about devs, because we've just put out an Alex Garland episode about movies, right? Let me ask you this, Chance. What was your entry point into devs was it me telling you about it uh no it was seeing so many photos of nick offerman with that hair under that like halo of light yes the promotional visuals basically were over and over again i was just like is that nick offerman that was my introduction to the show and then i had read a little bit about alex garland being affiliated with it and i was like oh i like him definitely I mean, I guess the answer, the, the my new opinion is of, I sort of like him after watching all those movies the past couple of days. Sure, yeah. Um, he definitely has his things he is otherworldly good at. And then some very simple things that he like struggles with, which maybe come to the fore when you're dealing with like this much television. For sure. But also I think the television lets him go down some interesting rabbit holes that a movie just like simply doesn't have the time or patience for. That's also very true. I mean, he's the writer of such movies as 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Never Let Me Go, the writer-director of movies like Ex Machina and Annihilation in recent years. I think we both uh, really like those two movies, especially. Um, And now he is basically helming one long movie. This is a limited, as far as we know, like a one-off series between FX and Hulu, right? I guess. We'll have to see how many people watch it. I could see it ending with some outrageous cliffhanger that sure. elicits a second season. Um, but we'll have to see. So, Because on this podcast, we're only doing the first four episodes. So the first half of this eight-episode uh, series. And then I guess we'll see where we are after the, the back half. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to try to take it episode by episode. So as with... Uh... If you're one or two behind, you should know maybe like where to drop out, where to come back in. We'll try to go in in order as well as we can. How would you sum up or introduce just this show? Well, it's by the writer-director of Ex Machina and Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of exists in that headspace, the, the cosmic uh, judgment that 
Alex Garland has chosen to put over this world, and he's setting his sights in this space on San Francisco tech culture and this particular company called Amaya Mm -hmm. uh, that is doing AI and encryption and quantum computing in a way that is making other people nervous, including the U.S. government. Uh, But to the outside world it just seems like a profitable ubiquitous tech company and we focus in on this couple that's working there uh lily and sergey and in one of the opening scenes sergey shows this new like predictive program that he's written that sort of can tell what like a small organism is going to do 10 seconds into the future and his boss nick offerman and his lieutenant um katie played by allison pill um they see him give his little presentation and then have everyone else on the team sort of excuse themselves and then say you're done working in ai we're taking you to devs this is your station but what am i actually doing here i'm not gonna tell you don't worry you're gonna figure it out The last time I saw him, he was headed toward Devs. And then he disappears. Something bad happened to him. You know what happened to him. If you came for answers, ask me what you don't know. What is Devs? Lo and behold, the next day, Nick Offerman takes him into this bunker filled with all these security protocols and the whole fucking things like floating in an electromagnetic fields and says like this is devs like mm-hmm. this is the this is the thing you're like in devs but it's also this computer that extends above us and below us it's a whole it's a whole thing and just like you'll figure out why you're here take your time do whatever needs doing and sergey well, how how in the weeds do we? I mean, I, I presumably people have seen devs if they're listening to this podcast. Why don't we? You want to say like a little more, just like about the first episode without spoilers? Um, it's an interesting rendering of San Francisco. I'll say in a way that it's sort of the swinging pendulum on the other side of uh, Silicon Valley. Right. So all of these episodes open, and I think we'll probably talk about most of them with these really intense montages at the front of the episodes. And some of them seem to be predictive of what will happen in the episode, and some of them seem to just be for aesthetic effect. But this opening one here is like very San Francisco. It's like there's a great juxtaposed scream of a sort of a homeless man presumably suffering from some sort of mental illness, like screaming and swinging at the sky. And then that's juxtaposed with like some guy doing yoga in his hillside backyard, like letting out some, a mighty ohm, um, which feels like a putting one's finger on the, the crisis of that town. Absolutely. It's really concerned with the amount of unspoken class and money that's like happening in San Francisco and how, you know, these people are basically taken from their picturesque urban bedroom communities and shuttled into the forest <laughs> to sort of, you know, tinker in secret. On a company bus. which really On a company me, bus, yeah. which I think is not, it's not atypical of some of these campuses and being shuttled out to, you know, these, um, like the campuses of Apple and facebook and google and whomever but it looks so weird when you see these people living in these like slightly large apartments you know kind of like sparsely decorated and then to see the just sheer amount of homeless people around and just to see that there's no they don't really i mean there's a couple scenes where they like go to a bar but the san francisco of this show is just like where they sleep there's every all the action is on the campus for right. the most part it's like where you sleep and where you scan your badge um and if you need to catch somebody in the larger san francisco to help you with the problem you catch them right after they've swiped their badge and are headed to where they sleep it is you quite have to get them in transit for yeah. sure 
Um, let's talk about, because I think we can say a little more without spoiling stuff, like how this is kind of quintessentially Garland. If you've seen Ex Machina, you know that he's interested in a lot of these very contemporary themes of the, you know, technocrat with too much unchecked power using sometimes more of like a blank canvas, more innocent character to test out what's going on here. And a version of that is playing out in devs on a much busier stage. Um, Let's talk about Offerman because I mean, he's like the, he's like a major point of interest. If you are just like me having seen the promotional materials, were you presumably you knew he played the technocrat, what did you think you were going to get and what did we get? It is kind of interesting because to me, I'm conflicted about how well he is cast in this role, but also how miscast his sort of physical appearances. Right. And I was texting you about this earlier that like, you know, I bet you 10 bucks that one of the main reasons they cast Nick Offerman is to have a flashback scene where he looks like Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec. I think that's like very before smart. Before whatever like horrible thing happened that led him down this path. But he does look sort of bizarre with like the long hippie hair and like the the big bushy like, you know, Williamsburg beard. Right. Driving around in a Subaru Forester being like this Warren Buffett type. But he's also so good in it like he's so funny in certain scenes i think like the first time we really meet him is in the meeting with the predictive ai software and he's just like shoveling greens into his face with his hands and like kind of and he's like laughing and like having a really good time like with the presentation too and then he's able to like turn very seriously from that sarcastic sort of warm sense of humor to just like fucking deadpan it's really not dissimilar in that way from Oscar Isaac's Caleb and Ex Machina, right? I mean, for sure, the front side of it is very chummy. Like, how you doing, guys? I heard you made some cool shit for me to look at today. And then he's giving a speech about the determinist universe as he does something unthinkable. Um, yeah. But, of course, the great thing here is the irony of casting Offerman is he plays at least in the last 10 years, television's most famous Luddite as Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. And I think that this show must have an awareness of that because it's certainly the biggest and meatiest Offerman part since Ron Swanson. Um, like, he, when he slips into things... I mean, yeah, I know he had a, kind of a lead part in that movie, Hearts Beat Loud, that like wasn't a very big movie. But for the most part, he just like shows up. He's like the sixth person, and you're like... And the guy who did uh, Ron Swanson, he's married to Megan Mullally. But this is like, there's a lot of meat on this bone and uh, he's chewing on it. He absolutely is. And he has a good cast around him too of like television vets who can pick up the slack in a very serious world. And I think it's funny too to have like some of these people like Allison Pill or Zach Grenier, um, Stephen McKenley Henderson, who I really, we both really liked uh, in Lady Bird, which is, of course, a movie. Right. <laughs> Stephen McKenley Henderson is like an all-world stage actor, though, too. He was great in Fences, and I believe that was his part in the Broadway production, too. Um, he's right. incredible in this show. But no, that guy really knows how to do something with 10 seconds, and he does it a lot in this show. He has those, yeah, terrific, or he'll just put a line out there into the world in a way that like any other actor would just, it would be anything else. But he just like puts a, him just saying like, yeah, baby. Yeah. It's like incredibly loaded. I think this might be an episode two, but there's a, there's a great bit. Uh, Forrest Offerman is delivering like instructions to the team. And he says, uh, I know we're going to do better guys. And Steven Henderson's like, a, is that a, I know we're going to do better. Or an I know we're gonna do better, and it's all. I wouldn't surprise me if that line is like rewritten in the room because they're like, Stephen, can you just like make this shit sing? Because it's all based on the inflection of you. Allison Pill is inscrutable too. You right. like can't figure out what she's doing, but you know she is doing something, and like, be very afraid. <laughs> she to me is definitely like a 
Kristen Bell, but we wanted you to be more scared. There's that big ominous face. Absolutely. And we can talk about Zach Renier playing Kenton, who's like the number, he's like the enforcer guy. Yeah. He's the consigliere. This is true. And I I mentioned this to you earlier, but I think he's such a, I know we don't talk about House of Cards anymore, but such a good, like almost Doug Stamper type of like, you know, for some reason he has, he's allied with Forrest, the um, Nick Offerman character. You don't know quite why, but you know that like, there's never going to be betrayal there. And, Zach Renier, and he's going to kill. He's going to kill. <laughs> it's true. Zach Grenier absolutely is like, if you see his face, you're going to be like, oh shit, what 20 things do I know that guy from? He's the boss in Fight Club, whom Edward Nor- or Ed Norton beats himself up in front of. Uh, he's in Deadwood. He... He's somebody like William Sadler hangs out with at Definitely. the like character actors ball. Absolutely. I, by the way, I think that Doug Stamper shit is a great call. I think that uh, if we're talking television, which is a television podcast, um, I think it's kind of like he has Doug Stamper's job, but like has that Jonathan Banks Breaking Bad physicality. Something about like, you're telling nice. me you tuck that polo into those khakis and you're still going to kick some ass, but you really believe that he could. Let me ask you this. What are your feelings on the big, uh, the big girl baby statue? <laughs> The little kid statue. In the middle of the Amaya campus, there's like a 50-foot statue of the titular Amaya, uh, Nick Offerman, Forrest's uh, dead daughter. So I think we should probably turn a corner here. If you, if Which you, corner is that? The one toward, we hope you guys have seen the pilot of this show, because we're going to kind of start going episode by episode. We're going to start reading the code? Let's choose some plot. Let's read some code. It's an unforgettable image. It's a piece of production design. It just like raises this question for me of like, isn't this man and everything he's built such a transparent monument to his own personal thing? Which I think is just a curious choice because a lot of times Garland's crazy authoritarian figures, whether they be Caleb and Ex Machina or Mark Strong and Sunshine. Um, uh, Mark Strong. Yeah. Love Mark Strong. Oh, yeah. He's very strong. Or the Christopher Eccleston major in 28 Days Later. Most of the time, they're like trying to express like a worldview. And I think that everything about Forrest is kind of like, my daughter died and I built this company for her. (laughs) Isn't that fairly apparent? Yeah, you get in an early scene so now that we're turning a corner, when they're inside the dev's box, you quickly figure out that the thing they're working on somehow like can reconjure the past and then they're trying to figure out how to do something to alter the future maybe. Mm-hmm. It's it's unclear. Um and we'll get into it more as we get later into the episodes. But that has somehow relates to, as we're talking about, the death of Nick Offerman's daughter, uh, who is who has the statue of her. Her face is on every like window that has like a digital screen, and every screensaver on the back of the computer has her. And there's like these posts that are add up that you can like see her face in. It's very freaky. Um, but your argument is that that's you think it's maybe too much projection for like what this guy's end game is. Yeah. Because I don't know what he believes or if he believes anything. And I think he's always telling other characters what he doesn't care about. So the drama is propelled then by, I mean, I guess we can get into it pretty quickly. So Sergey sees the mainframe. He sees the code. He realizes that, Something's going on here. He then, he like fucks with his watch a little bit. Right. And he's like holding the watch sort of like adjacent to his screen. And Allison Pill kind of like notices it a little bit. And then he's trying to go home to tell Lily about day one of devs, as you do. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he can't. They right. agreed they wouldn't. And Nick Offerman's just like hanging out in the the heavily wooded path that takes him back to the parking lot or whatever. And he's like, did you know that the universe was deterministic? 
and gives this whole long like Colonel Kurtz speech about how we're just like fucking, you know, trams on a tramway mm-hmm. and we're we're all going towards the same thing and every action that someone takes they're simply reacting to something that they experienced earlier so the fact that he's been like using his quote-unquote james bond watch Mm -hmm. to like record the code uh was something that sergey clearly chose to do and not to betray nick offerman so then you're thinking oh he's gonna he like knew this was coming and he's gonna be really chill about it uh, he's not chill about it. Kenton comes out of the woodwork and Ken's got like serious old man strength. He throws Sergei to the ground, like sits on his back and then kills him with like a, a plastic bag. Yes. And it's incredible. It's incredibly violent. It's, but like just impressive that like these two guys were able to, he, he looks like a physically fit guy, Sergei. Sure. But, He's got those long, lean legs, but he doesn't get the open field in order to, you know, break away from anyone. Well, and I just absolutely love the idea that at this uh, floating god cube of a tech company that the security guy's like, I think I'll take him down with a plastic bag. Like the, it's incredible. The most analog, uh, you know, 15 Well, I guess the whole point is they're trying to not do damage to his body because they're going to, of course stage uh whatever's going on i think if there's a big flaw with this first episode it's that i okay so i sensed something both very correct and very incorrect about the characters through the casting in this first episode the first one is that sergey is not gonna stick around on this show because carl glusman is fine but you can kind of feel that like there's no way there's just no way we're hanging eight hours of television on this guy. He's not that interesting. Um, and so that's the part where like the main character fake out didn't quite work for me where I did get screwed up and turned around. And this was the whole thing is that she Lily Chan his the goes out with Sergey um, after the disappearance is it after the disappearance or after the video? It's the disappearance. Well, it's after the disappearance and he doesn't come home that first night that she starts getting freaked out. And then I would agree with you. Yes, the narrative does totally shift to her noir story of like figuring out then what happened to Sergey. And she gets like little tidbits of, you know, what's going on. Right. So then she goes to see this spurned ex-boyfriend who she seemingly kind of like very abruptly walked out on two years before, who's played by, uh, his name's Jamie, and he's played by Jin Ha. He's a cybersecurity specialist. And you can just, the, I think the reason I was so taken with him is like, immediately you can see someone who knows how to use his eyes and eyebrows to like react and be interesting and be like, is this what you think of me? He has a lot of like human give and take in that scene with Lily. And you haven't gotten a lot of that so far, especially between Lily and Sergey, who I don't think were a super convincing couple. Um, where I was wrong though, is this is definitely like Lily's story. Now I think there are problems with the way this character is like written down the stretch and what she's given to do. Right. Well, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that you could tell Sergey wasn't our hero because of how flimsy he is. But I think the problem is that if you do shift him onto another character, that also means that that character has to be less flimsy than the one you left. Right. And I agree with you that from the outset, other than a couple of like maudlin scenes of her being like, yes, mom, I'm very alone. uh, It's hard to really know what Lily's got going on. But I think the show is playing with that. I think the show is sort of testing the viewer and almost surprising the viewer that this kind of uh, sort of gender fluid looking woman becomes the protagonist of a show that you would assume would be dominated by a man. I think you're right. I think it is an important test for me. And it's weirdly, I think, an important test for us to stick around and see how Garland passes it. An interesting bit of trivia, which I only realized kind of halfway through, is that Sonoya Mizuno, who plays Lily, in Ex Machina, she's Kyoko the housekeeper, who is an AI. Right. 
And then in Annihilation, she plays the the humanoid who mirrors Portman at the end. So here right. in two... So y- your theory is that she's not actually a real actress, but a robot. No. So Garland has twice used her in sort of like ambiguous and in the first movie definitely like subservient roles for just how she moves and looks. So it's kind of like... And she doesn't do a lot of interesting physical things in this show so far. Um, Well, not in the first episode. I would argue there's some pretty good action with her later. And I I would imagine even... And five through eight is going to have even more. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is I'm waiting for him to kind of make good on this character. Because this is somebody who seemingly has filled some really interesting adjacent roles in his other work and is now at the center of it. And I'm waiting for the character to really kind of bloom out. The problem with the people that run tech companies is that they become fanatics, end up thinking they're messiahs. It's pretty neat. You'll see. Why don't we move to then... Episode two, because episode one ends with Sergei getting strangled. So more fun with that that like cold open montage. And I would say, well, the first episode clearly had that. It almost reminded me of Invisible Man. Uh, the just sheer level of volume on the creepy music. Right. And this one makes it clear in the first second with a congregation by low that they like also have a couple of interesting music cues up their sleeve, I would say. You're totally right. I do want to say though, that like Jeff Barrow's score is fucking cool. And I think it is so cool. So much more going on than there is in the invisible man score, which is typically just like, this is like, there's like jazz instruments on top and some like really rickety high sound effects that you, the kind that like blared in your mind for days after annihilation and then there's often like some like Gregorian chanting underneath it. And this is, I think, is a really cool, it's perfect for a Garland movie because he's so interested in the furthest reaches of future tech and also just like very, very ancient things. And that comes through the soundtrack. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely provides an epic quality to that. And I think this one is a little bit more self-aware and funny. And also going back to your point about the first episode in those sort of uh, montage sequences in this one, you won't notice it until you've watched the whole episode, but you're seeing the future in that because you see two men kind of struggle in a parking lot and it quickly goes to something else, which reminded me a lot of the technique in sunshine when they're going through the uh, Icarus one and like the flashlight would like catch a still image of like these people at a different time. Totally. That was kind of a, it almost felt like Danny Boyle. Like maybe he's picking Garland's picking some things up as he goes. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? This episode, going back to your point about the daughter has the two states of being monologue in it where Forrest played by Nick Offerman really gets deep into his like, unbridled sadness about the loss of his daughter and he refers to her as being taken from him so i wonder what that means if it means like a disease or if it means someone literally took her which makes me i'll posit my first fan theory here that this is sort of like a minority report type situation where he's like trying to solve who like killed her oh and like do it with such an accuracy that that's why he wants to look into the past possibly that would be my just just one theory that's a good theory man it makes it carries a lot more narrative thrust than like i just want to see my kid blow bubbles on a bench right yeah but maybe that's thinking about it too small because he authorized the murder of someone else in the process here so maybe like that doesn't i don't know but anyway, do you think that monologue in particular and just the work that that does begins to show maybe like why Alex Garland should stick to movies and not like give every episode one of these larger theoretical monologues? 
I don't know. It's hard to say how much we're supposed to care about or understand like the theory behind this project. Because this idea of the multiverse and, you know, there being many different universes that we all exist in in some form at the same time is... Well, he doesn't believe in that, though. He I believes... know. He well, that's just so funny because he fundamentally believes that the world is deterministic; that there is none of, there are no multiverse. But then again, he keeps poking at situations and expressing feelings that he accounts for the even the variances in his own life. Of one of me is really sad and went this way, and the other one is like very detached from it and went this other way. And sort of those contradictions are sort of that maybe is what fundamentally is interesting about the program. I think that character, especially as you like get better looks at him in different light and he's got kind of like a weird receding hairline and he really looks like quite uh, like pale and sickly. He It does bring up just in sort of a different way than drunk uh, weightlifting Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina, this idea of like these tech obsessed people who are still fucking trapped in human bodies. Um, yeah for sure and like no matter what they do no matter how much power they accrue unless they get the power to move beyond that they're still just like they're stuck in their human perception no that's a good point i also think on the flip side of that and going off a point you made through the first episode uh sonoya mizuno is able to really like show her her cat-like physicality she's like climbing up the side of that building which makes me sort of it sort of pulls back from that um, the right. idea that all these geeks sitting in this room are just like out of shape or whatever. Right. When she has this sort of real world skill that gives the viewer early on the sense that she can compete both in the tech space and in the physical space. So there's a great bit of Garland dialogue where Jamie talks about like, well, why is this code from the Russian state like three or four years old? Like, why would you not update it? I guess it's like a heart surgeon who smokes or something like you don't take your own best professional practices to heart. Um, And he just he really starts to like wield some a little bit of charm that might turns bad later on. And I think that one of the interesting things is a lot of times charm and personality in a garland story is actually a bad sign typically like the vessel at the center whether it's killian murphy natalie portman donald gleason or sonia mizuno is blanker and if you miss even killian murphy in 28 days later too this performance sonia's performance reminds me a lot of killian murphy from 28 days later and how physical it is in the space and like you know that they're competent, but you don't quite know what it is they're going to do. They are mostly just, I don't know if this is a bad thing, but they are mostly just like vessels for distress, especially in these first two episodes. Like you get like, she's smart. She, like you said, competent. She's driven. Right. She's very upset. Jamie's definitely in the, uh, Brendan Gleeson category of expendable characters. (laughs) We're probably going to see get killed for our own pain. That's right. Yeah. So we shouldn't, I shouldn't be fooled by who gets the personality here. Um, I I tell you who's not long for this world is Brian Darcy James. Spotlight's own Brian Darcy James as mm-hmm. like the Russian uh, handler for Sergey and whatever he was doing. Yeah, Anton. Hey, Ivan. <laughs> it's Anton. That I think is the the best well we'll get to that scene but uh brian darcy james kind of a terrible russian accent considering (laughs) like he's known for several roles as like a fun american dad or like a hard-working american journalist or something of repute so to see him come up with this accent and i don't know do you think he pulled off the line in my profession when a colleague commits suicide the first thing i say to myself is they did not commit suicide it's a little much. <laughs> I don't know. Much. But thank God that by the end of the episode, he's dead. This is like a... Okay, so this is where I want you to tell me, like, do I just need to accept television digressions like this? Because this plot, insofar as we can tell, with the 
Russian people paying Sergei for the intelligence is kind of a like, let's keep you guys busy through episode two. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a nice opening to hint at, well, who handles Anton? If Anton handles Sergei, like, who does Anton report to? And what will that person do if Anton is killed? Probably Admiral Ramius. Oh, my God. Do you think he'll defect with a nuclear submarine? Do you think this movie is a prequel to The Hunt for Red October? Movies. Movies. That is a great scene, though. When the parking garage scene? my buddy Kenton goes up against Anton and they have what I'll call the on no bullshit treaties. Right. And talk about like what it means when someone says, okay, no bullshit. And Especially how that in is an a American. rhetorical. Yeah. How Americans use the idea of being candid as a rhetorical device to like frame their own misdeeds. One example that Donna me today that might fit the bill would be like, um, for instance, like America's not a country that shuts down might be an example of straight talk being used to cover immorality. For sure. Absolutely. Um, and it's so funny, the juxtaposition of Kenton who like is this goon for this powerful tech company, like go up against this goon for sort of a crumbling empire yeah. uh, and see who, who decks it out and who lasts the most rounds. And they like go for a while, like bringing in that fun music cue again, the low song to see them like go around. It's kind of hokey at first, but the ending next snap is just like unbelievable. I think this show moving in a different direction here really impressed me when it did not have any shame about using the dev's device to conjure the likeness of Jesus Christ on the cross, Mm, mm -hmm. both as like a telling us what this thing does and also just being like a ballsy offensive visual choice. And all the like visual choices for this machine are basically offensive for one reason or another. I do. I really like how, garland conceives of this uber tech basically like electromagnetic imaging anything in history you want to see so they start with jesus but the ways in which it is never quite working is i think really convincing what i don't understand about it is like who framed this shot like what video are we watching like of jesus like what do you mean like this is the (laughs) Like, what captured this image? That is a So I think it's question. kind of ri- ridiculous that they go into this, like, screening room. It's very much like the sunshine room. Have you noticed that? Where people, like, play on this little laptop or handheld Definitely. thing and, like, the thing gets brighter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's so funny that you say that, which is like, yeah, are you, are you moving around through a... F- Three-dimensional rendering? Or, like, but, yeah, no, it's just a shot of Jesus... <laughs> Right, you'd think it'd be more of like a VR kind of thing. Yeah, wow. You really, uh, you took like a film theory approach here. This is good. Let's move to episode three. Everyone believes Sergei committed suicide. I think it might not be true. There's stuff about Sergei you don't know. Like what? He was a spy. She's had stuff like this before. Stuff like what? Schizophrenia. Do not do this. Anything that happens to her is explainable. Your cold open here is all of these fuzzy electromagnetic recreations of famous moments in history. You've got uh, Jesus again, of course. Got to play the hits. Cavemen, pyramids. Was Joan jo- of fucking Ark burning? It Joan of Ark or was it a Salem witch trial? I couldn't tell. Oh, interesting. Then uh, Marilyn Monroe fucking Arthur Miller. We haven't probably given l- enough love to the age gap tag team that is Stephen Henderson Stewart and Kaylee Spaney's Lyndon, who she's maybe like, what, 15? I don't know that anyone ever uses a, like a gendered pronoun to describe them. I think you're right. 
But those two yeah, are just and like this fourteen-year-old goofing her off with like a seventy-year-old man or whatever, right. and they get into that funny argument too about the boomers versus Gen Z or whatever. Right, right. So there's a great scene at the beginning where they render Arthur Miller and, or I think "render" is probably even the wrong word. Like if whether depending on what we believe about this tech, they witness a true either simulation recreation of the thing of Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe having sex, which leads to a great Alison pill speech, which like is very reminiscent of some of the back and forth in ex machina where it's like, yeah, the first thing that people do when they get a hold of tech like this is boring. They recreate something that already exists or, and then two, then they make porn with it. So please stop it. You guys. Right. I thought it was a little easy to have um, them be like, oh, we, we already checked out JFK. It was Oswald. <laughs> right. It's easy, but I think it also shows like how jaded you would get so, so quickly if you had this power. It's like, oh, yeah, before lunch, I looked at something that people obsessed over for 50 years, and I found the answer, and I'm done. I think there is some sure. truth behind that. Pivoting a little bit, I feel like the third episode is when I really began to like appreciate some of the good San Francisco like second unit stuff. And also the fact that a lot of these network shows will like digitally render a helicopter landing. Sure. This one appeared to be a real helicopter. And you have to say something about the level of professionalism in a production like that. So if nothing else, there's a real helicopter in the show, guys. Okay, so this is the episode where the Lily character kind of comes alive. Again, in a curious way, because you don't... I'm wondering if there is, like, an authentic Lily. Like, do will we get that moment where it's like, like, oh, yeah, I get this character. There is something at the core of this character. I like that it gives something for her to do in this... She gets a lot to do, right. because she gets to do a full-on fake-out. And she... Gets to climb walls again, which is kind of fun. Uh, she does climb. She does climb. Yeah. Well, there's this interesting thing where... So she's witnessed, of course, her boyfriend self-emulating. She wants to take a closer look at the actual footage because people are saying he didn't kill himself. It was murder or something. And so the show goes down this hole that you think is the classic like i'm not crazy why won't anyone listen to me trope well actually what's happening is a huge distraction so lily with the help of her friend can get the digital recording of the him setting himself on fire in front of the security camera uh so they can take a closer look, which was I was so annoyed with the show when I thought it was like already going to go for like, you know, oh, we have to put her in a mental institution immediately. If, if she isn't in by the third episode, it's over. I don't know. Maybe I've seen that a lot with like uh, Invisible Man lately, but I was just hoping. But then, of course, it's not that she does have some agency and does have a plan, which is going back to our appraisal of like having this kind of character be the center of the story, like is a refreshing moment to be like, ah, she's got it. I got you. Um, I'm definitely not like cannier about spotting misdirection than you. I don't think. Um, but for some reason, like this one where she starts doing the numerology, I was like, this is a fake. This is nonsense. Oh, interesting. I, for some reason, when she started doing Fibonacci sequences, I'm like, it's too much. It's too on the nose. But a good scene, too. It is, yes. And this is, of course, the episode that sets the higher stakes, too, where, as you described it, Kamala Harris shows up to talk to Forrest about what the government can, A, do for and, B, get from Amaya and whatever they're working on in the forest. They do. Those two have some really great repartee about, like, here's what you should say to me at the intelligence hearing that's, like, just specific enough that no one will bat an eye about it. Oh, you're inventing something that predicts the weather? Great. You and I are going to get along. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, Noah, hugely important question. What is on the wall of the coffee shop on campus? 
Did you oh, spot I don't it? No. What is it? No. Tell me. In the scene where Lily enlists the help of her friend, they're in this kind of glass waiting room or like a glass right. gathering area. And on the wall by the counter where you get coffee, in big red neon letters, it says, We are all stardust. Oh my God. Fuck yeah, man. That's incredible. That is Mark Strong's line from Sunshine. Yep. His Colonel Kurtz speech. Wow, that's so interesting. Isn't I was too taken aback by, did you notice this, that there's like a w- woman sort of yelling in that kind of distorted dev's way when she enters that glass conference room that makes you kind of think that like it's a it's part of someone's vision, what's happening in that moment? Oh, I can't say I noticed that. When she walks into it, when she comes back from being, from mourning at home, there's like a noise as she like walks in. I'm not sure I would have been able to distinguish that from the rest of the score. No, I think it's very, it's very distinctive. Okay. Whatever. Interesting. Um, I think that's going to come back. I think there's going to be a huge like M. Night Shyamalanian, like, like Alex Garland on steroids. Fuck you coming for us yeah we should t- i think there's a hint of this in f- episode four too where we might get kind of our first look at like i'm sorry what's going what way what's the simulation those kind of giant heady geeky sci-fi yeah. questions um well do you want to talk about now like we're we're what three hours into this thing yeah and you like of course have the question of what's the difference like where do you stand on limited series versus just like movie right um, I mean, part of this may just be that I watch a ton of movies, and when I go to television, it's typic- I typically like television that is very comfortable and classical in its self-concept. I'm there for long-term character development and hang, whether that be on a sitcom or whether it be on something more prestigious like sopranos or Mad Men or whatnot i think a movie or <laughs> i think a show like this finds itself in an interesting space where it is just like okay is this a seven hour movie so like what parts feel quintessentially like television what parts are obligatory because this had to be cut up and delivered weekly and right at the end of this speech i want to ask you if this should be cut up and delivered weekly but the ending in this episode is like a real hammer home the conspiracy point where they see how they created the self-immolation video with vfx and then they kind of like roll backward the camera as you see the uh uh, zach grenier security character kind of set it up and it's interesting i grant you but it's also like we know how bad these people are we already know that there's like a massive self-protective conspiracy in here so like why are you pounding this note? But maybe that's me just being like not accepting the conventions of television enough. Interesting. I thought that was an interesting moment where they sort of show how they faked the video, which made me question whether or not like they just used Photoshop or whatever to like make it look good. Or I think you had the theory that the video was somehow created by the technology they're working on. At the very least, those two things have to be thematically connected, right? They're allegedly... You don't think the video is just, like, doctored for her benefit, like, using Adobe products and having nothing to do with... You think it's all wrapped into one? I don't necessarily think they made it with the quantum bit supercomputer in the devs thing. I don't necessarily think that. It looks like a cheap okay. CCTV video. Got it, got it, got it. But, like, I think there is something that Garland is at least thematically interested in like, here are all these people who go back and look for the authentic, like you said, middle shot depiction of some of the most important moments in all of human history. And they're yawning by lunch. Um, And then here are two other people like hanging on this grainy fucking footage, looking for the truth. And like, it wasn't real. So why would any of it be real? You know, I think that's, those are the seeds of uncertainty. I think he's trying to sow. That is a good back and forth conflict there of the two screens. And like, maybe that's a little too cute for me that I like, I haven't fully bought into like whatever the thing does. I mean, maybe it's cause I don't fully understand like what it is, 
but the rendering to me like doesn't make a ton of sense but maybe i we just don't get it yet maybe not i wonder if you like do you what do you make at this point of the like the cliffhangers and the resets like those kind of that television artifice is that working for you here yeah i think he's doing it in a clever way while still acknowledging that you have to i don't think he's reinventing television like i think with you know the first two seasons maybe the third one of mr robot like that potentially reinvented like what a show like this can look like Mm -hmm. even homecoming this is like sam ishmael this is like sam ishmael shit at this point but it's i don't think that garland is that he's more interested in storytelling than he and he's fine playing with the tv rules here Mm -hmm. he doesn't I mean, but we'll see. Like, maybe the whole thing is going to come crumbling down around us and we're going to have been duped by this eight-part thing. Like, I think a goof and commentary on streaming and on this format is afoot. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. In terms of understanding and not understanding the tech, I think, like, that's what I'm interested in. Because over seven to eight hours... Like, they have to feed you enough to engage you in a more conceptual discussion of, like, what this stuff is, right? Compared to, like, the shimmer, it's like, it could be this, it could be this, you're not supposed to get it, Tessa Thompson grows a flower out of her back, and, like, it's over. In part, in part it was an art, in part, it was an art, in part, it was an art film, right? Um, this is sort of like, you can't just say, it's art television for seven hours. Like, I need to, on some level get some of it so i'm wondering if i'm gonna get more of it before the rug is pulled out that'll be a we shall see critical balance let's get on to episode four i'm just scared of what us they're gonna kill me she's a highly intelligent young woman stop the car i'm afraid not you shouldn't be watching this. I stop seeing them as a tech company. See them as a mob. Lily's kind of putting together parts of the mystery. She'll realize that the fire's been a ruse, confirm that suspicion, but Ken's on her heels and she no longer has the ally of the russian secret service or whatever Mm -hmm. uh, kgb we also get a new glimpse into what the machine can give us back in this clear voice that's supposedly the voice of jesus christ Mm. yeah kind of amazing how quickly the i successfully pretended to be crazy backfires no (laughs) Yeah, it does come to bite her in the ass pretty quick because then she's forced to see like the company psychologist, um, which, of course, played by one of the Americans from the original Mummy. Oh, yeah. I couldn't believe that that guy was a psychiatrist. Not a show goes by where we don't. He was on the wrong side of the river with Benny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know you're talking about. I thought this one was particularly interested in the outside of the devs building, which for me, like never looked totally real. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it looks fine when they're on the ground level around those statues or sculptures or whatever. And then like going into the door. And I like the, the inside of the building itself, which is obviously digital, but you know, Alex Garland just like loves gold shit. So like a lot of it's gold. And looks like, I mean, it's from the same, from the designer who brought you the spacesuits in Sunshine comes this magnetized room. Totally. But something about this episode, both the devs building and then something, not even the cars themselves, but like the scenery around the highway sequence felt a little weird to me. I mean, of course, they like couldn't close down a fucking highway to shoot this sequence, but I don't know. I think you also hear... What is the cart and what is the horse in terms of right. outside reality? What's and the action what are, and what's the reaction? And what? Yes, the cause and the effect. What are they doing? Because so there's a scene where 
this homeless man outside of their building who has at times been like a buddy to Lily, but an annoyance to Jamie when he stops by to see her and definitely to what's the security guy's name? Kenton. But as Kenton pulls away with Lily to take her to this forced psychiatry appointment, he runs after the car and does sort of a like taxi driver, like finger gun thing. Right. Right. And then in the next scene where I think we're supposed to believe that Lyndon, by embracing the multiverse theory, kind of like cracks the code to clear video and audio, she then does that in the workspace, right? Oh. Doesn't she? I mean, she? good catch. I didn't... Yeah, I think that's probably right. I'm pretty sure in her celebration, she like does the same finger gun thing as if to be like, I might have done this... Two, I think it's unclear whether they might have just predicted what would happen with the homeless guy out there or whether they're following suit somehow. That seems like a connection that is going to be important somewhere. Wow. I didn't even notice that, but it sounds sounds like it is connected. No, maybe that's when people find the variances in our universe mm-hmm. and they like... Oh, it sure. seems to be the question of changing from the tram going on the line to something else evokes the reaction of like the finger guns. I don't know. Right. It's interesting how all the characters relate to both like the idea of fate and what's happening and also like the idea of the machine and what role that's playing. And it, it's almost like it's a character in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like how things are going to unfold is something that like can be called baby or like be given the finger guns to. Right. Or, you know, be somewhat like confused by or something. I mean, like Sergei has like that. He vomits when he first like sees the the man behind the curtain. Throwing back to Sunshine again, like this computer this mystical computer is the sun in this movie right i would not be surprised if it turns somebody into particles in the next four episodes we also see forest flip the fuck out for the first time in this episode because linden by shoving aside some of the stringent equations that were getting them crackly audio and video and embracing the multiverse theory basically brings them pristine far better than this podcast i'm sorry to say audio of jesus christ and i think you sound just as good as jesus christ that is what i've been fishing for for nearly 150 episodes um incredible (laughs) um and i can't think now after you said that i am flustered as fuck but Lyndon thinks that they've gotten past whatever issue was going on that distorted the audio and everyone's excited except for Forrest, of course, which I think is what you're saying, who fires Lyndon on the spot. Because they didn't abide by the math and Forrest now thinks that that is a Jesus, not the Jesus, and screams, if it's not our Jesus, it's not my Amaya. Again, showing that he cares most about sort of the personal cross to bear but there's also something like i'm thinking back on like if you hadn't forgotten the 50 foot amaya that's just outside (laughs) um i don't quite know what his deal is but it's a good acting turn from offerman who can quite one of the jokes i wanted to make earlier is in that opening scene where you see him be so chummy and he's like i'm not a fan of the multiverse theory it's kind of like saying like I don't really listen to Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash after Neil Young leaves the band. Is like the, you know, no-cal hippie vibe he's given. And it is completely abandoned here in favor of something scary. He still believes it, just in a way that you hadn't realized until just now. I do not listen to CSN, god damn it! <laughs> My fan theory here, though, is... I don't know if this is thwarted by the scene with Allison Pill where he does legit get upset, but I think that like people, I think that Sergey like performed some function and that's why they brought him in just the way that Lyndon performed some function and then was immediately 
like escorted out. Like part of me thinks that once people serve their function, they're fired because their job is done. And maybe this is all a device to have the people on the team think that that's not what's happening. So they don't like get any ideas, quote unquote. I think this holds a lot of water. In retrospect, like once you get four deep in here, the whole idea of Sergei being a Russian operative who's just like, I did a cool, did a really good job till they let me in the big building and then I immediately stole is all pretty convenient. It's so immediate too. It's like he doesn't think that he'll have like another chance to even do this, which makes me think that like that served some function like to give a piece of it to the outside world was necessary in some capacity or something sure we shall have to see and that's a very ex machina twist right of like for sure i brought you here to see if to for her to do a turing test on you because often what there's one thing you talked about the cosmic fuck you and garland movies if there's one thing we know it's that the conspiracy and the important you know, twists and turns of the universe are way more important than this, than like Lily probably. Yeah. It's in the episode prior, but the scene where Kenton uh, and Forrest talk about their trams and like, he says, I should quit smoking. And he's like, it doesn't matter. Right. And he's like, I, you could get a uh, Tesla and pretend you care about the environment. And he like talks about the environment. Like that's nothing we'd ever have to worry about. Right. Which makes me think like his doomsday machine uh, is coming to a close pretty, maybe by the end of these eight episodes. Probs. Interesting. Kind of reminds me of Watchmen a bit where you're sort of, questioning the whole time like what is this machine that this person is building and like what specific function does it serve yeah of course this episode also shows that this series is an action series too there's a pretty interesting stunt where when being driven not home but to involuntary commitment lily causes the bmw that kenton is driving to crash into the guardrail and again showing her physicality that she's like not a afraid of that and b immediately like a cat having nine lives just jumps out of the car and like runs for it and the only thing that almost gets hit it's almost like watching it like an animal like cross the street when she almost gets hit by that truck and the only thing that gets bumped by that other car is her purse mm-hmm. but her like she's able to move around it almost reminded me of um, what's that movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where he's the bike messenger? Premium Rush, of course. Premium Rush. Movie. But then Kenton, Kenton just like, that's a, you talked about earlier, but that's a, a moment where he checks his wound is that like after the fucking car crash. He's right. like, I wonder if my stitches are still on my fucking side. That's true. And he pulls up his shirt and then keeps running. And then, of course, the cliffhanger that we'll have to end here with uh, is this is the the car crash and the running away and the threat of involuntary commitment is enough for Lily to be like, we got to get the cops involved, Jamie. We got to, like, take this thing legit. And when the cops show up, they are there to arrest her. Kenton is with them. And then he maybe murders Jamie in the bedroom as they're arresting her. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, really well shot. I mean, we don't really talk about a lot about where like Alex Garland puts the camera, but there's a great thing like to close out the episode where he puts the camera in the bathroom and you just see Kenton like some sort of movie monster just kind of like stalk across the room with like Jamie's throat in his hand, like toward the bedroom, like effortlessly. So any big thoughts or predictions for what's coming in five through eight? I think what concerns me most is will we get some like really genuine character building moments from Lily, which is like not the kind of thing that would bother me if, again, if we were watching a movie, because it would be done in an hour and 20 minutes. But like, there's just a lot of screen time. And like, I want to kind of know who she, like, who is that? Unless there is like a real right. twist coming. Well, I don't think it's it's no mystery that we've spent most of the time talking this podcast today, like not about her. Right. We're mostly talking about the people with whom she interacts and she's kind of leading the camera from person to person in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
but Garland it's tends hard to, to cipher those main characters. That's interesting. I wonder if there isn't like a flashback Hong Kong with her mom seeing a foot. Yeah, that seems very possible. Or maybe like when they're quote unquote back in Brooklyn, like they keep referencing like what happened last time. They do. Like I wonder what that's about. Right. Um, seems like if I've ever seen a movie or television show before that the why ever she did walk out on Jamie two years ago, that that might also be in there somewhere. I wonder if, like, she wasn't in on, like, if if they weren't, like, a couple of convenience for some, for her end or something. If she has some benefactor or something. That seems really possible, yeah. So interesting. My only other thing would be, how does he maintain the balance of, like, most of his movies are about losing yourself by the third act right like a certain degree of really compelling pseudoscience with just a basic like giving yourself over to the indomitable and sometimes unintelligible power of whatever forces are at work again that's really easy that's much easier to do in 90 minutes or two hours you got to keep feeding me both intelligible and unintelligible things over the course of seven for sure yeah. And what, what we'll about see... for you? Any big questions? I mean, I just want to know what the plan is. Like, what is Forrest trying to do here? And how late into the game are we going to fully understand, like, what his plot is? You're just like the hapless um, supervisor on the devs team being like, do we have, like, a marketing proposal for this? Or, like, what are... Are, we, are there deliverables? <laughs> you're right. Um, but I'm also interested to see what Katie's end game is yes, Allison Pills sure. character. Cause she seems to be like glued to Nick Offerman's Forrest's hip. And it's sort of, I wonder like what, what I'm sure there's an episode coming where it's like from her POV or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, or even from like Stephen McKinley Henderson's like, what's his story? All right. I think we're good. Are you good? I'm great, man. Can't wait to watch the next four hours of this TV show with you. This is a fun experiment, and I don't just mean our future and past mapping machine. I will talk to you soon, my friend. Can't wait. So-